Welcome to Retro Fanfic Retrospective, the podcast where we dredge up old fanfiction and expose it to the cold, harsh light of 2021. My name is Amato, he, him, and with me are... Tori, they, them. Taran, he, him. And Brian, he, him. Brian, thanks so much for coming on. It appears that we are, in fact, on a first-name basis with you. Well, yeah, we're all, we're all friendly. Uh, according to the lawyers and that contract you, you wrote up. <laughs> Wait, I'd like to take another look at that contract. No, nope, too late. Moving on. <laughs> yeah, Brian, we need to thank you profusely, though, for coming on, both for agreeing to come on in the first place and for having the... Um, I guess you have the honor of being the first person to ask to come on or, you know, <laughs> see, to ask us whether we'd be interested in having you on. To talk well, about your previous work. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense that you might not, because it, it can be weird when a creator, you know, uh, intersects with a, with a more fan-oriented space like this. And I don't want to step on any toes or, or be a weirdo. So, you know, I'll <laughs> to ask. Also, I will point out that technically I did ask to come on to talk about my fanfic, but that that doesn't compare at all to <laughs> this what we're going to talk about so yeah i think it compares perfectly well it's your you know what were you 12 writing a pokemon fanfic yeah yeah we'll pretend i was 12 <laughs> oh god he was doing this last week wasn't he <laughs> I, it, it lasted a little while but it's nothing like uh your in- endeavor brian i don't know it, it's uh, theater is about on the level of a 12 what a 12 year old would output <laughs> no, it's really not. Lies. But I do have to ask while we're on this topic, um, how old does it make you feel for us to discuss your, you know, long-running webcomic in a Ugh. retro podcast that only discusses old things? Boy, oh boy. Uh, you know, <laughs> there's gonna, there's a, there will be a time in your lives, and it's, it's already happened to me, when the, the music that I grew up with is now in the classic rock station. Yeah. And I'm like, that, no, that that stuff came out 20 years after the classic rock stuff. No, uh, yeah, I when I started Ape Theater, I think I was 22, so that was a while ago. I'm I'm in, steeped in middle age now. <laughs> we're not that far behind you, I think. I, well, we're like 10 years behind you, probably. Oh. I, I forget how old how old would I have been when Ape? Wait, 2001. Yeah, yeah. So I was 14. Oh my god. Same ballpark. I was uh, 12. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah, sorry. We're just trying to make you feel old. That's all it's this working. Is interview the is The difference for. between our ages now and Brian's age then is much smaller than the difference between yeah. our ages now and all of us were back then, right? So we're all old yeah. now. Sort of. We're, we're all converging on old age and infirmity together, yeah. Sorry, I meant, I meant classic. We're all classic. Oh, there we are. Well, it seems to be about that time to talk about 8-Bit Theater, though, because, Brian, you said that you're in the thick of working on your own retrospective. Yeah, that's, that's what uh, kind of drew me to the one that you guys were doing, because I just thought it was a funny coincidence. Uh, you know, over the years, uh, you know, people are always asking me, oh, could you do a book version? Could you do a book version? And I'm like, no, because I don't want to get sued into oblivion. Uh, but here it is 20 years later and I still get asked every so often, you know, when are you going to do a collection? And we just finally figured out, you know, what we can do is we can, it's the most ape theater idiotic project is to just 
type it up like it's a script book for all 1,224 pages, but then also include a bunch of new behind the scenes stuff and commentary and, you know, my thoughts about it as, as a creator who's been doing stuff, you know, for the last 20 years as well. Um, but gosh, that's been a huge endeavor there. 1,224. I know I just said it, but wow, that, that is a lot. Yeah. How far are you in that process? Well, I, I did all the writing already, and right now I'm, I'm like reading back over it and kind of making sure it's halfway coherent. Um, and for that, right now I'm at like the seventy percent mark. I've been working on it all year. It seems like so much work because, like, I don't know if I mentioned this when we did our eight bit theater review, but this is a text heavy comic too. <laughs> you know what's worse is having to type it all. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it had to be text heavy because the images were so limited. And uh, I'm not very good at Photoshop, so it was like, how can I, how can I have content without having to do anything? So well, that, <laughs> that kind of leads me into my first question: was I like, I, I, I was asking into the ether last time, is like, where did you get the sprites? Were they like somehow ripped from the game, or do you have to create them as an oh, image no. yourself? Yeah, or? they, I, I just found them one day on some random website. And uh, I downloaded them because I thought, oh, these are cute. You know, I always like the Final Fantasy one sprites, uh, especially the the pre-class change ones because they're adorable. And I just I just had them on my computer because I figured, you know, whatever, who cares? Uh, and then um, it was a it was for college credit. Uh, I had to. It was an independent study course, which is basically make it up as you go, right? So I decided, okay, I'll, I'm going to write it. I'm going to actually make a whole comic, and that'll be the whole point of this. You know. Of this class and then i'll discuss things that i learned from the actual creative process versus because we, we i was i had taken a couple like uh, you know college courses on comics and study a lot of theory but my thing was how much of that actually matters you know how much of that were people actually thinking about as they made comics versus how much of what ends up on the page is simply the necessity of the the content and the the time and the, the dimensions of the page and so on so the project was to actually make a comic and then figure out, uh, you know, why I did the things that I did. Can you hear that cat? <laughs> That's really cool. Um, I, I've always, like, I, I remember in college, there was all, always be people who would do independent study, you know, classes. Yeah. And I, I heard legends of someone who actually made something out of one of those classes and, you know, went on to be successful in some way, but I, I kind of thought they were more myths. So that's a little, that's a little inspiring. The legends are true. <laughs> <laughs> I like literally almost did something for my undergraduate thesis for the honors program. But then I walked it back and was like, I'm just gonna do short stories and be traditional. We had like two comics classes at my college. And then like two years after I graduated, they developed a comic studies program. And I was like, darn it. Well, you know what? I might want to back up just a little bit because uh, that's really interesting that uh, as an origin story for 8-Bit Theater, you've probably talked about this in interviews before and we just didn't do any homework whatsoever. You didn't do shit for research. That's what <laughs> Death of the author, uh, except we were talking about you all the time. <laughs> but what I was going to say is, um, you know, I chose it because it is, among other things, a fan story based on Final Fantasy. And so yes. since we have you here, I want to ask you, what's your background with Final Fantasy, the franchise and the original game? Oh, that's fair. Um, yeah, so I the first one I ever played was Final Fantasy IV, 
uh, two here in the U.S. for the Super Nintendo, uh, and then six slash three, which was the the best one ever. That's my first uh, two. Oh yeah, that was fantastic. Uh, and then years and years later, I, I played the actually in college, uh, and probably based on having found, I don't know the exact chronology of these events at this point, but I know that I found those sprites online somewhere, downloaded them because I thought they were cute. And then probably also at that time was you know, rekindled the the knowledge that, oh, I never played the first one. I had that fantasy, that Final Fantasy Nintendo Power strategy guide as a kid. It was like the second, it came out the second month that I had uh, subscribed to Nintendo Power. So, and I love that thing. I read it to death. I still have it somewhere. So it's like, I'm going to, I'm going to play Final Fantasy one. So of course, in the most epic theater way, even though I didn't know it yet, I pirated it. It was a stolen emulated copy. I never actually finished. That's about my experiences with the first game too. Yeah, <laughs> I got. I was. I was at the very last dungeon. I just never bothered to go in. I don't know why. Um, yeah. Since then, yeah, I, I didn't like seven because I was already a curmudgeonly old man, and I could see that. To me, it just signaled uh, what I thought was a, the wrong direction for the series to go. I mean, what the hell do I know? These guys made billions of dollars in the meantime. But just the, the emphasis on you know, graphics and these uh, summoning sequences that would take 23 minutes to play out. I was just like, ah, where, where's the soul? Where's the imagination? Uh, didn't play 8, didn't play 9, didn't play 10, did play 11. It was a soul-sucking experience. <laughs> uh, played 14, loved that one. I'm not going to say I was addicted to it, but I have a problem and I don't play it anymore. <laughs> so that's, that's it, that's everything. Me too. I've gotten sucked into the Final Fantasy XIV lately myself. Oh my god, it's fun! As for the non-MMOs, I definitely I definitely feel the problem of, like, you get to the end, like, the last boss or the last area or whatever, and then for some reason, probably something psychological, I just stop playing, you know, rather than finish the story. I don't know. To me, it's the expectation that that last dungeon is going to be like as long as half the game because sometimes that happens and just like it just feels like, no, you you know, I basically got to the end and it's just another dungeon. Who cares? Yeah, you've had anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, like one thing that keeps me from playing, I, I'm interested in Death Stranding, but I cannot play it because I've already heard that toward the end, there's like a two hour uh, or two and a half hour like cinematic, which is fine. Kojima's a madman. I'm on board for whatever. But just I just don't know. I know for a fact that I'm not going to have that kind of, that block of time available because like I'll have to get through a certain amount of gameplay. Who knows how much to get to that point? And then like, does the is this huge uh, cinematic going to start like? And I've only got 20 minutes left before I'm I'm going to be passed out and want to go to bed. I don't know. I can't take this kind of pressure. Well, speaking of you know the the commitment to these games and not you know necessarily wanting to commit to going all the way through. I want to ask about the story of 8-Bit Theater, because I, I don't know if it's fair to say, did you choose on a whim to do Final Fantasy, you know, as your basis, it, like, because you had the sprites and such. But then at what point did you really think, I, I could and maybe will go all the way through Final Fantasy with this story? Oh, okay, yeah, that's actually kind of interesting. So, like I said, I had this idea for a project, you know, let's make a comic and, and just get an A out of it, because I can bullshit my way through it. Although I did, I made a sincere effort on the on the thing. To be clear, uh, but I'm, but then you know, problem number one, you know, how do I get this proposal to you know be approved? Well, whatever I got approved. Problem two, I can't draw. Why did I have this idea to make a comic? 
this was this was just idiotic. Brian, you fool. And then I had a, a, a brilliant flash. I was like, oh, I just downloaded it. was just like two weeks prior. I just downloaded all these images from Final Fantasy. I can just I can just paste these guys into Photoshop really, really crudely, give them a little simple background. And it doesn't matter that they're just sprite art because it's just for college. You just need to know this is character one, this is character two. And I'll just make it a little funny just so that I don't get bored halfway through and fail the class. That was it. That was it. all the thought that went into it. And uh, but uh, something that just the way that my mind works, you know, so now I've got this story, right? I need like 25, 30 pages or something just to have enough content for the class. But I'm already as even that early, like page one and two, I'm already thinking, uh, you know, this could just be because when I when I played Final Fantasy one for the first time, maybe a month prior or whatever, you know, there's no dialogue in the game, right? But as I'm playing it, I'm making snide little comments to myself as if I'm the characters on screen. Because there's one guy, I forget which one, I think it was my red mage. He, he missed like 80% of the time. <laughs> so like there, were, there was always like a uh, little internal monologue of like trying to pump up, you know, his confidence so he could actually hit the monster. <laughs> He'd miss anyway. What a jerk. You know, stuff like that. So it just occurred to me very early on. These characters are so blank and they, they say nothing they, and they are nobody. I can just give them any personality. I'll just make them complete maniacs. Again, just to make myself laugh. Doesn't really matter. Oh, what would be, and then I just thought a few pages in, oh, it'd be kind of funny to see these guys actually go through Final Fantasy 1. Oh, well, yeah, that's okay. That would be kind of cute and funny. Uh, and I just kept going. I <laughs> just, that was it. That always struck me reading it that, like, I would expect from a webcomic that maybe the characters mess around for a bunch of comedy stuff, and then the author's like, oh, but I could do an ongoing story, and then, like, the ongoing story develops. But it seems like the structure, you had the structure in place by the time Fighter and Black Mage leave the forest and get to Coronaria, which is, like, eight strips in or something. Like, by then, it it might not have been completely gelled, but the basic idea of this is the story of Final Fantasy just completely twisted and expanded is there yeah. already real fast yeah. and then and there's there's points where it gets you know it hues relatively closely and there's other points where you know being accurate to the game isn't really interesting right like yeah. you've already played the game or or we can just read a walkthrough or whatever so i also really like uh, wanted to play around with you know using the game as a skeleton of a story and just you know just doing dumb shit with it just getting crazy with it just getting weird with it setting up expectations and knocking them down and then finding new ways to knock them down, given that you now have expectations for how the expectations will be knocked down. So you might say that you, Brian, knocked them all down? Oh, God damn it. <laughs> I, I was going to say something, but that made me lose my train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> Not sorry. It's a good line. Yeah, no, I lost it. <laughs> so you say... You, you didn't know how to draw. Um, something Amato pointed out in the podcast we did about the strip was just how impressive your ability to pack expression into these into these sprites was. And like even at the very beginning, you're saying you just used rudimentary Photoshop, but like you know you're zooming in and like the right, in my opinion, like a really funny comedic way. Um, which I guess makes me wonder, like, I know you've gone on to do your own comic, uh, various comic-based works. Like, 
how how long have you did you want to be a, a comic artist growing up like what's your background just generally with comics other than those classes oh yeah that, that's a good question uh i've read comics for since before i can remember uh actually when we first moved out of the house i grew up in i found a stack of comics that i didn't even remember i didn't even know they were there they were hidden or not even hidden they were just packed away in like some the back of, of some uh drawer and it was these uh what was it, it was indiana jones uh comics from like 1982 or something uh, i would have been like four years old at that point uh i didn't I, I i remembered them once i saw them but like i had gone my whole life you know having no knowledge of them essentially so comics were always there i, I mean i read there's Indiana Jones comics. I read G.I. Joe comics, uh, Transformers. Uh, in the 90s, that was my big rediscovery of comics uh, as a, a middle schooler, early high school maybe, uh, of uh, you know Marvel and, and some DC stuff. And then that, But that only lasted for a couple of years before it just pissed me off so much because this was the 90s and there was a crazy corporate comics boom. And they, they just, oh my Lord, it was awful. Uh, but I never gave up on the idea of comics. I loved the medium. I just didn't like what was being done with it. So then in the late 90s, early 2000s, you know, I'm in college again, and there's all these big box stores where you can finally get graphic novels. And in the meantime, comics have started to get a little more interesting again, uh, just shying away from all the terrible practices that just destroyed the, uh, gutted the, the industry back in the, in the early 90s. So I was already uh, getting back into the idea of, you know, uh, uh, reading comics that were just coming out, you know, modern comics. Uh, and then this comics course, and then Lambo, there's a bit theater. And then I work on that for 10 years. And, and now I've got uh, ideas about structure and, and how to play around with the story in a comic and so on. So then I'm thinking I'll do my own comic. I mean, maybe theater is my own comic, but one that I can actually sell, make money on and, and not have to have a real job. And then, you know, that's uh, Atomic Robo. Yeah. You know, you mentioned the '90s, and and we we I think all three of of us came up in the '90s and read a lot of those Marvel comics, and I just don't know how, or DC or whatever. I don't know how we, Rob Liefeld. I don't know how we like yeah. weren't just turned off with the medium altogether. Well, Taryn, in the when I was growing up, I was reading X Men classic issues of old Claremont X Men stuff instead of the stuff that was actually coming out at the time. And like, you were already a retro nerd. Oh my God. That's what I had a subscription <laughs> to. I was looking for back issues of Excalibur. And then when I got like a current issue of Excalibur, I was like, Warren Ellis was writing it. It's very good. And I'm like, what is this? This is not what I want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If we're talking about the comics industry, Brian, it occurs to me that is Apid Theater the last project in comics that you've done where you had full control over the art? Oh yeah. Yeah. Because you've been collaborating since then. Yeah, I just do the writing. Uh, on Atomic Robo, uh, Scott Wegener does the art, and he does a great job with it. It's interesting because when I was thinking about like Black Mage in particular, and like how effective the sprite work is, and how much expression you can get into him, and like I can still just laugh thinking about you modifying the little Black Mage sprite with like extra pixels on the hands to make finger guns, and like yeah. it's it's very cute. And that I was musing that Robo is also a character where all the expression is in the eyes yeah uh, just like just like black mage and i was like oh maybe you developed those skills but then i was thinking oh wait you don't actually draw robo you <laughs> like you did black mage that's on your collaborator but 
Robo's design was was essentially my idea. I, I can take the only thing I can take credit for with regard to Robo's design was that I, I said to Scott, he should be, you know, he's clearly a robot, you know, human size, human shape. Um, he should be retro looking. That was it. No real guidelines about what that means or how that should be, how that should come out. And his face needs to just be two big eyes. He has, he must have no mouth, not even like a Optimus Prime style faceplate. That's too much. And I, I knew that because after doing uh, Ape Theater for 10 years, Black Mage was the f- breakout fan favorite because he has that simple little face. You can do so much with so little, and it, it just makes so much more impact. In addition, I did I emphasized that with, uh, with Black Mage because of uh, Hello Kitty. It is this huge multi-million dollar, perhaps billion dollar franchise based merely on a blank face. But that is its power because it is such a blank face, because it is so simple. We can imprint upon it so much more easily. And I just wanted to take advantage of that. Okay, so that was your call. And I think that was a great choice because I read a bunch of Atomic Robo years ago, probably like before I had kids, like, I don't know, whatever there was eight years ago or something. And, (laughs) but I can still remember Robo's expressions. Like they still kind of pop out in my mind, just his face out of like all the visuals in there. Yeah. Like his face and like the kinds of ways that he has expressions and a little bit of his body language, which is the other half of, you know, emoting with such a character, of course. Well, and uh, so yeah, I think mission accomplished. Yeah. Every, every time we do a convention back when they used to have conventions before the, the plague happened, every single show, uh, kids, young kids, four or five, six years old, they would run up to our table because we have this huge sign that has robo, you know, has robo like he's doing a punch or something actually. But it's got it's this huge thing. His face is right there, and they just run up and they're just mesmerized, utterly hypnotized by just Robo. They have no idea what it is, what he is. They have no idea what it represents. But they it's that face thing. It's the Hello Kitty thing. It just clicks on them. And then of course we're like, oh yeah, this is kid friendly. Hey, yeah, sell a couple of comics, you fool parent. <laughs> Edit that part out. <laughs> yeah, no, we don't do that. Sorry. <laughs> I was going to say, you know, it's funny to me. I keep coming back and he said, oh, I don't draw. And I'm like, okay. But like, so I come from kind of an underground cartooning community more where it's like, it doesn't matter if you don't draw. (laughs) You just crank stuff out. But you have actually like a really strong, well, I shouldn't say that. It's just like some of the cartoonists we like a lot have a really wonky sense of anatomy or like half their pages are scribbles, right? Um, Trying to think of something off the top of my head, but that's always hard. But you actually have a really good artistic sense, this idea of, oh, what what would be popular and, and what's going to, like, appeal to people. And I think there's something about the way that 8-Bit Theater is put together that does that perfectly. And I, I just, I, this isn't even really a question. I just want to, like, praise you on that artistic sensibility that you have because, you know, it's it's there. I think you could draw if you wanted to. But obviously you're doing very well with what you're doing, so... <laughs> Well, well, thank you. Uh, yeah, I put a, a lot of effort into the construction of an 8-Bit Theater page. Uh, you know, it's easy to say, oh, you know, it's a break comic, he's copy and paste, and it's just, it's just ugly and stupid. And it is all that, but a lot of work goes into making it presentable. Uh, I mean, I would literally spend six to eight hours, six to eight hours a day on, on comic making day to create this page. And, you know, I mean, I was actually surprised myself because I haven't looked at most of these pages and, you know, 10, 15, 20 years in some cases. And so doing my own retro project, I've noticed 
you know, I, I did a lot of lighting work on this page. That's absurd. Yeah, you've got a really good sense for just the fundamentals of not just comic construction, but what kind of makes an object exist in space or expressions, like Amato said. And, you know, it's funny because you reminded me that I was thinking you the only Q&A on the nuclear power page, right, is like, should I make a Sprite comic? No, don't, or something to that effect. <laughs> yeah. And I was just wondering if you could, like, I'm sure you've talked about this before. Actually, I think I've read you talking about this before, but like, you know, why, what was so difficult to you about it? Like what made it so, I don't know, made you want to say that? Oh, I wouldn't even say it was difficult. Like I, I, okay. I, I you know, it, it took a lot of time and effort just because that's the kind of guy I am. And that was like the limit of my talent or skill with Photoshop. It would just take a while to figure stuff out. But no, I, I would say that, I think the, what I was really trying to get across with, with that FAQ, if you can even call it that, was that sprite, making Sprite comics can be a bit of a trap. I mean, let's consider for a moment, this will be, I, no one has seen more Sprite comics in their lifetime than I have. Because 99% of the people who made them sent them to me saying, oh, you inspired me to make this. Now, I'm not saying like this was bad or they shouldn't have done this. What I am saying that actually, actually, I always uh, said, uh, you know, that's great. You know, you should do a sprite comic because it's at least it's it's getting your foot in the door, right? It's getting you to think about how you tell a story, how you have characters, how you write dialogue, where you put things visually, how you tell a story, etc. Uh, I think, you know, whether or not you make any money off it is irrelevant. Uh, you know, that's capitalism, and, and that's a whole other conversation. But just having the the human instinct to want to tell a story, whatever goofy thing it is, whether it's, you know, Mega Man, you know, having pie or whatever, or if you're just using these sprites to, as stand-ins to tell some other story, it doesn't really matter. You're having fun, you're being creative, and that's cool and great. But uh, I learned the hard way that it can be hard to do this thing uh, for 10 years, and uh, you have nothing to show for it, in a sense, right? Like, I I couldn't sell 8-bit theater stuff. I had no book to, to make money off of. I mean, clearly there's more to life than making money, but like I do have bills to pay. You know, other webcomic creators at, at my level and above and below, you know, they, they, were, they were making a living. Uh, and I was on this really, uh, this precipice, this legal weird gray uh, zone where like I could keep doing it, but I wasn't really allowed to make money off it. Like that's a lot of time in the day. So yeah, I, I suppose my advice was, was I should have said more than just no, because really it's just about avoiding the trap of doing it for 10 years. It was a tongue in cheek thing, it, yeah. but yeah, it just was like, I was curious about it, but that explains a lot. We, um, we sort of raved, or at least I did about how committed you were to it. And the fact oh, yeah. that you weren't making money off of it at the same time is, is just more to me. It's more, it's almost puzzling. Like, it's just re like, I would assume that anyone else doing this would be almost like doing charity for their fans <laughs> because you were doing it on an extremely frequent basis for a really long time without making money. And I'm just kind of curious, like, where was it that you were just in love with the story and the characters, in love with the artistic expression of it? You're doing like eight hour days on this comic three days a week, I think. Like, yeah. Like, 
Well, yeah. I, I did ma- I did make some money because I was able to sell T-shirts, but that was, you know, that was started off at Cafe Press. Then we were doing our own thing. And even that was a bit of a gray area because I would always have to have another artist, you know, I would have to commission somebody to, to make the art and then pay them as well, cutting into the profit. Also, you can only sell so many T-shirts. People don't need all that many T-shirts. My God, the T-shirts. Every webcomic <laughs> was selling T-shirts. It was really more about not being able to monetize the actual content itself. That is so, that is a huge amount of a comic, an independent comic creator's uh, income. Uh, you know, like eighty percent is selling the book itself, and I just never had that opportunity. Uh, but yeah, I, I was um, said. I mean, so I made money, but like that really cut into how much I could actually make. Um, but yeah, I was just like I was committed to doing it. Like I, I felt like I had agreed to do it. So let's see it to the end. I mean, my recollection from what I actually read through the whole series is that it, it never seemed like there was a part where it's like, oh, the author's hurrying this up, trying to get to the end quick. It seemed yes. like you kept you kept your pace pretty steady, it seems like, in terms of storytelling. Yeah. So like, you know, again, you know, I've, I've just read this series for the first time in 10 years. And I surprised myself. I was like, because uh, going, the, my memory of experiencing the, you know, 8-bit fandom you know, I'm just making this comic. I'm putting it out there. You get feedback, and there were several distinct phases in the in the, not even the fandom, but just the the sort of cultural response to it, right? The the online cultural response to it. The first wave, you know, when it first comes out, is this is the most brilliant thing I've ever seen in my life. Oh, that black mage, he does the finger guns. I love it. Oh, I like swords. This guy's a genius. And then after a while, it, you get the backlash of that because people are tired of hearing people talk about it, right? This was, this sure. was sort of like, this was pre-viral. This was pre-social media. So like this was, I got, I got to see what all this was like. And today we go through these waves about, for one person, about five times in a day. Here it took yeah. years to play out. So then there, there was the backlash to the initial popularity, right? That lasted a little while. Then there's the backlash to the backlash where, oh no, secretly he was brilliant all along. <laughs> you guys were you're fools for, for being uh, on the backlash. Then there's the final stage, which was, no, it sucks now. It was only good in the beginning. He he sold out and he got bad. <laughs> and I just remember, you know, I'm watching this kind of uh, from a distance because I I'm just like, man, I'm just putting this stuff out there. You, you don't have to read it. It's free. Like do whatever. Well, you're you're getting too weird about it. But I remember <laughs> thinking because there was that that it was a, it was a small minority but very vocal uh, in the back half of the comic, the second half. Oh, it's terrible now. Oh, it's not funny anymore. I just remember thinking, the stuff I'm doing now is 10 times funnier than I like swords. Like, these people are out of their minds. So, you know, whatever. I just kept doing my own thing, just thinking that to myself. And here we are, you know, it's, it's 2021. Anytime I see somebody talking about Abit Theater online, it's a quote from the second half. Vindication. Yeah, and, you know, we are the critical establishment here, I think. There you and go. And I think we, we agree with you, too. Yeah, it starts rough. It, it sounds a little rough, but like, like I pointed out, for me, by the time we get into th- the 300s of the comic, which is like less than a third of the way in, it starts being, in my opinion, like even by today's standards, really good. And it just sort of stays good. And that's, I, I realize that's just straight up praise, but um, <laughs> I, I, I'm really curious what was happening for you in 2004. Because for me, it was like, wow, 
Mr. Clevenger is really like killing it right now. So if you <laughs> if you could tell us a little bit about your 2004, I, that would please me. Oh, geez. I don't even remember that far back. 2004. Okay. So I'd already dropped out of college. I dropped out. I'm also the only person in history to drop out of college to do a sprite comic professionally. How huh. sick is that? It worked out for you, apparently. It did. Yeah. Who, who knew? Uh, 2004, we would have moved to Orlando. Um, yeah. I don't know. I just, I, I think by then I was in a good rhythm of having a, I would use one day, my day off, quote unquote, was the writing day when I would work out the script. And then the prod, projection or product day would be the day of putting together the comic and so that was you know every other day i had something to do and keep it a little different also i i don't know that it was really anything going on in my life but i think that after a few years uh you know there i'd gotten into a rhythm with the comics i, I had i gotten to know the characters a little more you know the, the more that i did it every single page was i was consciously experimenting with something uh cool. how far i could push a joke how far I could annoy the uh, audience, uh, how <laughs> long I could delay actual movement forward in the story, you know, just, just toying around. Um, but also uh, that also involved toying around with the, the rules of the comic. You know, the, the more that we understood the, the more that we saw the game, the world of the comic, the more I wanted to play around with how the characters could interact with it. How stupid could things get? How dumb could these jokes become? You know, it, it's sort of like um, in The Simpsons, there's this one, it's it's a sideshow Bob where he hits these rakes over and over and over. And like, it goes on far too long. Like there's <laughs> there's a good five too many of these rakes slapping him in the head, but they just keep going. And it goes so long that it becomes funny again. You know, I was doing stuff like that. Yeah, it makes me wonder like um, if... Maybe you had slightly less, even though despite your commitment, you might have had slightly less pressure because you couldn't really license the characters. So like you were able to, to do this sort of laboratory experiment, like constantly stretching your like comedic and storytelling muscles. Would, would you say that, that, that was, that's been helpful or oh, what yeah. would you say? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. That, that's absolutely what was, what was happening. You know, there's no one there to tell me no. Right. So like, or, or to t tell me, you know, this is too stupid. Actually, there, there's <laughs> one time, I forget if I've ever mentioned this. There was one joke we never did. Uh, I, actually, I, I, I believe I do mention this in the commentary uh, that I'm working on now. One of Garland's plots early on, because, uh, you know, first we see him at the Temple of Fiends, right? And he's incompetent and he's terrible. Sierra does all their hard work. Light warriors escape and they go about their adventure. And then after a little while, and I don't know what it is, 25, 50 pages, whatever, Garland comes back, right? And, he, and, you know, he's still incompetent, whatever. But one of his plots at this point was going to be, yeah, that, that's right. It's King Steve kind of gets in contact with Garland to sort of fake some sort of, you know, new crisis to cover up how King Steve's a terrible ruler, right? The idea was that this was, it was going to be that Garland was going to fly a dragon into the twin towers of the Corneria castle. I was convinced Ooh. not to do that because it was horrible. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, that joke would have gone over really well now in 2021. <laughs> uh, yeah, but this would have been like 20, uh, 2002, 2003, like too soon. It was too soon. I agree. Yeah. I'm not certain it would have gone over well now. <laughs> I, I would laugh right now. I was laughing right now at that joke. I'm sorry. 
<laughs> Maybe that makes me a horrible person. Bad influence, Tori. I'm sorry. <laughs> we found the black mage of the of the podcast. Apparently, <laughs> yes. Who would it's have not known? too late to work it into Atomic Robo, Brian. All right, I'm I'm on it. Let's see. To switch gears a bit, do you have anything you might want to say about the tabletop role-playing game, game influence in 8-Bit Theater, which is, you know, oozing all over the place? And I remember the old, like, you know, Red Mage advice column, too, which was just more indulging in that, too. Oh, yeah, uh, the Red Mage advice column was written by my buddy Ryan Sosa. Uh, oh, oh, yeah, that, that, that name rings a bell now, like yeah. I read it on your site a million years ago. Yeah, I think he... I think he's a teacher now. We kind of lost track because I, I moved down to Orlando and, you know, we're in our 40s now, so we're all living our lives. Um, yeah, the, the tabletop influence. Yeah, so, I mean, clearly uh, the original Final Fantasy was just Dungeons and Dragons very slightly changed. So I think that was just something on my mind. I also, I, I mean, I was a role player since forever. Um, back in, like, grade school, like fifth and sixth grade, uh, my parents worked all the time. So for uh, school afternoons, I would often go over to my, my neighbor's house because uh, their kids would be home. And their kids were like, you know, 16, 18, whatever. So they were like an adult influence, right? They to just make sure I didn't set anything on fire. And But their buddies would come over and they would play D&D &D or Battletech or Robotech, different role-playing games. And, you know, I just kind of got involved or, or interested. I never played with them because, oh my God, you know, could you imagine a grade schooler trying to play D, D with a bunch of teenagers they, they just kick you out of the room but uh so i, I got into role playing very early so it was just something that was on my mind while i was uh, working in 8-bit theater um and it just seemed like a natural fit to have one of the characters be the min maxi kind of guy i mean he was red mage was sort of a in joke if you think about it because at that time you know this was early 2000s role-playing games were not as and D, D were nothing like the, uh, the cultural moment that they're having for the last you know 10 years or so five years whatever uh but he was he was really popular and uh, and for me i feel like bringing red mage in and having that avenue of not just being oh video games isn't it funny how they have health bars or whatever but having that extra uh vector of comedy to talk about games and, and sort of game, tropes in games that weren't just video games, but there's also now tabletop games. That opened up uh, some interesting uh, possibilities, I felt. And uh, I think it paid off. People like really gravitated toward the Red Mage. Um, yeah, I, I remember myself doing so. Um, as for the other characters, did you, did you base them? Like obviously Thief is the thief, like is the yeah. prototypical thief. Um, white mage is, you know, caring and healing, but like black, yeah. black belt, for example, or, or Garland, did you have any inspirations for, for the, them? Not really. Like they're, they're all clearly just whatever fantasy archetype that they are times a hundred. So black mage has to be, uh, like Raceland from the, the Dragonlance books where he's just, just evil, just an evil shit for no reason, but you know, amplified even more fighter has to be the you know the the warrior who's he's good at heart but he's kind of dumb you know it's all that stuff and then some the others then the the you know the, when we start to get into more secondary and tertiary characters it's the same thing just less powerful right like um garland has to be the villain but it's going to be funny because he's he's terrible at being a villain but he keeps trying you've got uh drizzle the dark elf and they're always conniving and and 
and haughtier than thou and, and, and holier than thou, both at the same time. But he's going to be kind of competent about it because, you know, that's the choice we make. Um, you know, stuff like that. Black Mountain has to be the... It was always weird to me, even as a kid, that we there was even monks in uh, Dungeons & Dragons. It's so sort of central, European-based, and then suddenly we have ninja and, and stuff, and it's like, well, that doesn't really belong. What is this guy doing here? So he's vaguely Asian-themed, but also he's not Asian at all. You know, it's just stuff like that. Cool. I think one of the early... Um... One of the early jokes I remember laughing at when we reread just now is White Mage complaining to Black Belt about breaking every board that they were going to use to construct a new town hall when they passed <laughs> by because he couldn't stop himself. And part of that is just the bizarre dichotomy of, yeah, having this fantasy world and then just applying these hardcore, totally stereotyped martial artist tropes to the one person in it for no clear yeah. reason. Yeah, there's no reason. But, I mean, he's going to do it. I mean, he's the Black Belt. What else is he going to do? He breaks boards because he's a black belt. Yeah, in a fantasy world. It's funny, though, because it's like, yeah, I like that you brought up the Dragonlance books because I read a shit out of those when I was a kid. But, yeah. you know, you also make reference to the, um, you know, Ari Salvatore stuff with the drizzle elf, dark elf. Um, <laughs> I like that you make references to those tropes, but I was just thinking about it. I was like, everybody's sort of like, fighter's almost like more like the barbarian, right? Because he's like dumb in fights. There's like almost no one who plays the the straight man for the group. And I guess a lot of time, like we mentioned before, that's technically white mage, but it's like she's also sort of comedic and sort of watching from afar. So it's almost as if you had a, a fantasy group of really hyped up archetypes, but like no one to keep them in balance. Is that kind of what you were thinking about? Or like, I don't know. I'm just curious about the characters in a lot of ways. Uh, yeah, so White Mage, so the problem there was that you, you can have too much stupidity. So White Mage kind of had to be the one where, uh, had to be a character who could help move things along, help kick these, these, these four incompetent, stupid, backstabbing jackasses into the right direction for me. Because left to their own devices, they're just going to, you know, bicker at each other the whole time. So I needed some something there, something in the comic to every so often show up and just, you know, move things along. That's enough with the, with the jokey stupid. Let's move on. Um, which isn't to say that she herself isn't allowed to be stupid. She has, uh, there's a, a recurring joke where she just loves Italian food and can be talking to just any <laughs> stupid thing. Blatantly, obviously stupid, shouldn't be doing it, but she's like, oh, but they offered Italian. Uh, or... Um, what else was there? Black Belt, you know, having come up with the whole thing where he just has, he has like such a terrible sense of direction that he, he warps space and time somehow, creates a copy of himself because he just, he is so lost. There's now two of him. Like what? Okay. Okay. Quick question. Um, um, were you basing that on anyone? Because there's, there's a character in a very famous manga, which was becoming popular around that time who has an incredibly terrible sense of direction. And is a martial artist. Oh, yeah, it's, it's uh, Ryogo. Yeah, Ryogo. okay. Yeah, uh, no, actually, I never read any Rama, but um, I myself just get incredibly lost very quickly and easily. Uh, so if anything, it was just, you know, a hyper-exaggeration of that. Just a coincidence? Okay. Cool. Yeah, it's actually, the character is very similar. 
in some ways. Yeah, okay, but... Brian, of those characters that you kind of locked yourself into using for the long term, right? Like the main characters, right. White Mage, I think Black Mage you eventually write out. Um, were any of them kind of... Did any of them turn out to be harder for you to write going on or harder for you to kind of deal with as a main character to keep funny or fresh or uh, or keep usable? Uh, no, <laughs> they were all... Great. They were just... Because they're, they're all so themselves like it would just come to me basically uh uh you know red mage is always going to have some idiotic entirely too convoluted obviously too dumb to work plan and then every so often it actually works perfectly you know uh, thief is always going to be ripping off everybody you know black mage is going to want to stab everybody it, it, it was very simple it kept things going and you would you know it's easy to say oh it's just the same joke over and over and it, and it is but like that was also kind of I kind of wanted that because it's the, the that's the gameplay. It's the same battle over and over, right? Like, yeah, there's little tiny differences, but it's still you're still gonna do the same thing, whatever. So I kind of wanted the humor to act as like a sort of a narrative version of playing the game, right? Like how you you have all these random battles and they're all play out essentially the same. So the jokes, I mean, they're different, and I play around with the setups and and everything, but still the characters are just so monomaniacally who they are they, they're, there's only so much that they can not do or or so much that they that you can you can do different with them and again just to use that as a challenge to to see how far i could push things and how how much fun i could have with that you clearly had a lot of fun and you also spent a lot of time in these characters heads so i was sort of curious like did you ever feel like it was taking over your brain a little bit. Like you'd just be on the train. You'd be like, what would black mage do right now? Oh Lord. No. Uh, <laughs> the closest it ever came was that um, fighters dialogue is generally, it was always the first thing that came to mind, uh, which is embarrassing to say, cause he is so stupid. Uh, <laughs> but no, they, they all, you know, they're, they're all at once uh, an exaggeration of our, of archetypes and bad, not bad, but not good. Uh, fantasy fiction. Uh, they're also just uh, exaggerated archetypes of people that, as a uh, somebody who was role playing at that time for ten or fifteen years and was around role players for like five years before that, you know, you see all these people at the table. You see the guy who's just like stab crazy. You see the guy who's going to play the dumb wizard. You see the guy who's always going to want to do a scam or rip somebody off or try to get away with something. Or and obviously everybody had the guy who was min-maxing at every single opportunity. So it was just real easy to, to get my head into those spaces and to, and to play around with them and to have them bounce off each other and, and so on. For the record, the guy who couldn't stop himself from min-maxing was Tarin. Ah. Hey. <laughs> Look, I mean, you, you were a lot more genial about it, Tarin, but you just couldn't not it's true. make a character That's true. that was finding no everything. <laughs> I, I definitely made sure that everyone was aware of exactly like how glorious my character was there wasn't any sliding any maxing in under the table you know at least there's nothing wrong with that we're all having yeah. fun i have a seal of approval so yeah. so there, that's your mother. love for red mage <laughs> now brian um you listened to our our episode after I just like totally blanked on the idea that you were even a contactable human being who I could let know that we were doing this, but you found it yourself and you listened to it. 
which is mortifying because, you know, I was like, oh, I only read like, you know, one ninth of this thing before gaining, talking about it like all, like I knew what I was talking doing, about. Hey, listen, doing no or very little research is ex on 8-bit theater is extremely 8-bit theater. So you're fine. Yeah. But what I'm getting at here is, is there anything that we talked about that you wanted to like chime in when you were listening or respond to or set us straight on? Yeah, I gotta say we were not that well researched for this one, like all things told. So please oh, no. do. <laughs> no, it's fine. No, there, there were uh, a good point was raised. I think I think it was by Tori, but I don't recall uh, that there was some misogynistic humor. And so this is something that I, that I you know I'm encountering now as I'm reading it again, uh, twenty years later. And yeah, there are definitely jokes that I wouldn't do now. Um, I don't know. It's hard to say that it's misogynistic. Bro, it's hard for me to say that. Perhaps because I'm the guy who wrote it. But also because... Um, so like, yeah, it's, it's mostly focuses on Black Mage and his relentless pursuit of White Mage. And it is just... I mean, it's awful. It's terrible. It's supposed to be awful and terrible. I don't know if that's an, a, a great defense. But here, here's where it came from. Growing up, like in the 80s, well, yeah, growing up in the 80s and seeing a lot of 60s and 70s and, and 80s media, there was this constant refrain in, in movies, especially like a rom-com, where, the, you know, I, I don't even know the title or whatever, it doesn't really matter, but here's the story. Guy likes girl, guy borderline stalks girl, girl eventually gives in, this is a happy ending for both parties. That's insane. Even as a child, I was like, this is horrible. What am I watching? Why are we making these movies? What, what message is this sending? So I wanted to do that storyline, uh, but have White Mage just consistently shoot him down. To, and what, what I found really weird in, in the process of doing it was people, uh, you know, fans being like, when are they going to get together? When, when are they going to finally hook up? Which, you know, they thought it was a will they won't they thing. And, and it just terrified me as an adult. Because that, because I realized people were so brain poisoned by having seen all these stories, all these movies in the past, they thought that this was normal, that this is the way that that black, the way black mage is behaving towards white mage is actually not inappropriate. That she that he should be quote rewarded for this behavior. So that just made me double down on no, she, he's going to be even worse. She's going to just shut him down constantly. This is this is bad. I want this at least this one time and this one story for this not to work out and for it to be normal that it doesn't work out. So that's where I was coming from. Yeah, I I think I remember thinking as a, as you know a fifteen or sixteen year old. Oh, wouldn't it be so interesting if somehow they got together anyway? And I only recently no. like watched the only recently watched Breakfast at Tiffany, Tiffany's. No, sorry, I get those two movies confused. The Breakfast Club first time oh, like God. a couple of years ago and it's considered one of the greatest movies of all yep. time and like one of the primary male characters is insanely terrible to one of the to one of the women and and then just they get together at the end i was like what is this and it's and, and we're supposed <laughs> to we, we expect that to be a happy ending oh my yeah. god oh yeah no, I mean, that's all over, especially I mean, rom-coms, not just from the 80s, which was huge rom-com era, but even going up into the early 2000s, up to oh, yeah, 2010. Yeah. It's only recently, I think, the stalker thing has kind of gone away. And I appreciate you pointing out that, that was what it was supposed to be a parody of it. And I like I, I think that that works really well. 
I think the only thing like that's really kind of, you know, that I was thinking about was like, oh, well, but white mage at some point really should be more firm about the fact that this is not a she thing should. that's going to happen. However, hearing you say that it's a parody of those sorts of models, I think I understand that a lot better. And also it's just like my constant problem with black mage. I'm like, is it funny or is he just awful? <laughs> like, you know? Um, oh no, but, I, I, no, I, I, I totally yeah. understand. Um, <laughs> Um, he is just awful. Uh, yeah, he's he is just funny. awful. Yeah. yeah. But it is interesting to think about, though. You know, that's a character we talked a lot about because because of that conundrum. It's like, is this supposed to be a joke or are we just supposed to be shaking our heads and going, oh, no. Oh, yeah, no, no, no. No, it's the latter. And like I had to keep um, that's how he, he keeps getting worse because people I felt were not getting the message. Like, you know, he was a very popular character. <laughs> I see. Um, a lot of people assumed that Black Mage was sort of like. I think another thing that was playing into that actually was that people uh, tended to assume that Black Mage was like the, the the author stand-in character, which was a very popular thing in in web comics of that era. That there would be a character who was explicitly the author, or <laughs> or was just very obviously you know the mouthpiece of the author, and it would generally be the character that gets the most lines or gets to be the funniest or whatever. And so Black Mage, uh, I think people assumed that that's where that was because Black Mage does get a lot of the dialogue because he has to be saying these terrible things to, you know, get other reactions to, to have the characters bounce off one another. But, uh, no, as I, as I said earlier, fighter, if anything, if anything was the voice of, was my uh, arterial voice. Cause this really was all of his dialogue, which is exactly the first thing that would pop into my head. <laughs> um, now black mage is, I mean, black mage is funny. You know, he, he gets to have that sort of id stabby, you know, whatever kind of reaction, but he is constantly, clowned upon by the secondary characters, the rest of the cast. I'm, I'm amazed in doing my own, uh, you know, retyping of the script and all, how often, how many panel descriptions are all of Black Mage's friends ignore him because, you know, it's just Black Mage, who cares? Because <laughs> they're having, they're actually having a conversation. He's just off in the corner, being this weird little goblin trying to kill everybody, which is like, no, just just shut up. You're, you're just this weird loner. We're trying to take care of business. You You take care of yourself over there. Yeah, I think I think when they're trapped in that in the ice caverns or, or whatever with the Olympids yeah. and he has this journal and he's talking about yeah. how they're all gone crazy and they're just like wandering around looking for a way. Yeah, out they of... they have actually I just did this part. Yeah, they are are actually getting out of the problem. They've found a way out of the, the ice tunnels and they're they've got a plan and everything. He is writing in a journal, he's made a little fort out of a pile of slush. He has gone insane. But they're the ones that are actually making the story move forward. So you mentioned like you you got feedback from fans, and I'm kind of curious how that worked for you. Was it was it a was it a lot of forum interaction, or did you get a lot of emails? Like what what was interaction before social media? Because I don't remember. Oh, yeah, no, it's it's hard to remember. No, back then for me it was largely the forum, occasionally email, but it was mostly we had a forum, and so it was through that. Let's see. Brian, a little bit earlier you mentioned, you know, being aware of all of the self-insert or semi-self-insert characters in other webcomics. I'm I'm flashing back to Mega Tokyo, and of course there's Penny Arcade, and there's a bunch that I'm forgetting. Oh, yeah. But uh, were there any other webcomics that you were following at the time that you were making 8-Bit Theater that kind of inspired you to do anything different with your comic? No. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> I don't... I, 
it's it's so strange that I ever thought of doing a webcomic because I really didn't read them. It just kind of occurred to me, like, oh yeah, I'll just I'll just do one. Whatever. Webcomics are kind of like an interesting thing in and of themselves. Like they feel like they were an era and now they've intersected recently with, you know, actual publication. At the time it was sort of like a spitball, whatever you want to do. Put yeah. something on the internet, you know? Like I remember when Ava Theater first came out and I mean there might have been thirty webcomics total. Like what a bizarre world to live in, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had them all, like, bookmarked on my desktop. Yeah. I'd be like, I gotta check all these today, you know? Yeah. And I know you're not the only one, Brian, who years and years after starting this project got a lot of attention is like, oh, man, putting this into a book is a nightmare. But they have to find some way to do it because, you know, unlike you, they were actually able to do that. Yeah. I mean, that's what I'm doing this year, basically, is just I'm spending almost, I'm spending a couple hours a day at least every day going through these old comics and writing up scripts and coming up with commentary on them and adding new jokes, not to like the dialogue, but like, you know, just in the comic, in the, in the commentary itself, it's kind of, it's just funny to read. Um, in addition to, you know, just my thoughts about the creative process or, you know, what was happening on this panel or, you know, Oh my God, black mage is an asshole, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> I'm glad you pointed out how like deliberately you created black mage. Cause like, <laughs> I was just in such a quandary about, like, what? Is this a reflection of the time? But, like, no, it was a reflection of you reflecting on how bad people could be at the time. Yeah, it was, just, yeah, it was a reflection it was of... great. Of, it was a reflection of an era of, not comedy as such, but just the weird societal pressure and expectation that, like, uh, I suppose a gender roles, at least with regard to white mage and black mage. And, you know, it's... Like, this was a normal thing to have a guy just to, well, he wants the girl, um, so he deserves her. Like, what? The, the, uh, no, 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 no. This is not how we run a society. Get out of here with this. Um, I mean, even today, there are characters in really popular cartoons like Archer or... Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, where, like, almost all the characters are really terrible. And yeah. everyone sort of like was pretty cool with that until I think about five years ago. Then something kind of switched. But I think you can still do it. You just have to you have to do it from the right angle. You have to be terrible in the in in certain ways. Because uh, you can be you can have these terrible characters, and you can be they can be selfish and jackasses and backstabby and bickery and selfish and all that. Uh. But they don't have to, and, and even just, just bad people generally, but they, they don't have to be chuds about it, you know? <laughs> like, there, there's definitely, it's approachable. It's something you can do. Yeah, what do you think, like, the appeal of writing characters who are so flawed is? Oh, man, yeah, I don't know. Because uh, I, I do that a lot. Like, we don't do that in Atomic Robo because that, that's just a different vibe entirely. But uh, a comic series that I'm co-writing with uh, Lee Black, our editor on Atomic Robo, with art by uh, Escher Cattle, uh, Arise Ye Skeleton King. It's another fantasy comic. We did a Kickstarter for it uh, earlier in uh, 2020. Yeah. Uh, print edition will be out in November, so probably in the mid-November, so probably by the time people are, are listening to this. Nice. Uh, it's about this troop of jackasses. Well, not really jackasses. They're 
they kind of run their own little circus, right? They're little performers in a fantasy setting. But the circus is just a distraction from the fact that they're stealing from you. They're, they, the whole show is kind of a scam. It's not very good. Uh, they're pickpocketing the audience as they go, etc. cetera. Uh, so they just run scams. Like that's just how they get through life. They're, they're con artists. And they come across this, uh, this golden opportunity. It's a map. And it's, there's, there's tre- amazing treasure at the end of it. We just got to follow the map and we'll get there and we'll get this treasure and we don't have to do these, these, these scams anymore. So they get there, they find the treasure, and it's this amazing treasure room. But also in the treasure room is a lich, this ancient, powerful skeleton wizard. And now he's mad at them. And uh, we'll just see where it goes from there. But they're all thieves. They're all conniving. And uh, I don't know, just something about that is fun to play with. Just the, these people who are such gremlins. Uh, it's, fun to, it's fun to watch them fail. It's fun to set them up to succeed and watch them fall on their faces. Is that the first time you've returned to the swords and sorcery fantasy humor genre since 8-Bit Theater? Yes. Uh, in a lot of ways, it's sort of scratching that itch. A different different question. You mentioned going to conventions for Atomic Robo. Did you go to conventions as a guest talk to talk about 8-Bit Theater? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I've been doing conventions since uh, 2002, yeah. Can you describe your experiences there? I'm kind of more curious, like, I'm sure you had experiences with fans, but I'm kind of curious if, if you if you had experiences with other webcomic artists or comics artists in general and, and what that was like. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I've met all kinds of webcomic artists uh, through conventions. Um, you know, it's it's a pretty chill crowd, Um Everybody, I mean, I, I kind of stayed, I don't want to say apart or alone, but I always felt like uh, I kind of didn't belong because I was the only one who wasn't really make, you know, truly making a comic. I was pasting it together from other, I was stealing other people's art and making it that way. So I, now no one ever said or did anything to make me feel like I didn't belong. This was all my own internal stuff. Uh, so I just tended to, to shy away. But everybody was really nice, uh, really accommodating. You know, you end up at these large dinners because, you know, you, you make a couple of friends and then they bring a couple of friends and they bring a couple of friends. So you have these huge dinners where it's like 20, 30 webcomics people and everybody's just chilling and having fun and doing whatever. You know, I was never involved in any weird drama. Uh, I never saw any of it. Like, you know, I, I think a lot of that stuff was just sort of to whatever degree it, any of it existed, I think it was just kind of blown out of proportion by different fans and and you know subcultures within the within fandoms. Uh, webcomics creators themselves have always struck me, uh, you know, in person to person is just pretty chill, you know, just ready to hang out. And, you know, when you're at a convention, you really you're it's just another part of your job. So it's kind of like, you know, when, when you go to work, you know, how many fights do you get into? <laughs> it very rarely happens. I should hope. So to be fair, my experience with conventions is a lot more after parties than there usually are at your job. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, see, I never did those, though. I was always really? like, oh, I, I just don't belong. Aw. Yeah. But like I said, you made a wildly successful comic with great artistic sensibilities, so clearly you did. Yeah, I guess I was doing something right, but I don't know. Just, you know, none of us can, can, can control what gets popular or why. 
you know, even in the early days, well, actually all throughout Ava Theater, you know, I would see other comics creators, you know, pop up online, do amazing work, get nothing, you know, no real traction and just, you know, fade away and have to, you know, do something else with their lives or try some other project that they clearly weren't as invested in and just didn't have that same spark. And, you know, you, you, what can you do? You know, like, so, so like you, I, you know, it's easy for you guys to say, Oh, you know, Brian, you were, you were doing a good job and thank you for that. But to me, it's like, well, you know, Abit theater just is, is popular because of all the nostalgia, right? You know, there's these sprites and it's just, there's nothing else quite like it hitting that nostalgia mark. Right. So it's just popular because of that. And it really doesn't matter what I do. Uh, you know, it's not really me so much as it's everybody loves Final Fantasy one and just the novelty of seeing these sprites, seeing these eight bit characters from 1987, you know, act in these, you know, un- unconventional ways. I think you're not wrong, Brian, that I think, you know, the sprite format is the key to your success. But there were other sprite comics before you and they did not hit it big. And some of the things that you were doing specifically in the kind of long-term storytelling, the kind of humor, and the kind of page layouts even, I just don't remember any other comics doing at that time. Um, so at the very least, you were... It, it it all was not unoriginal. Like, it, you had your niche that you kind of created. Yeah, yeah, and, and I see, and I do see that now. But at, at the time, you know, it was just easy to write off the success, success that I had as something that wasn't truly earned. But now I'm, I'm, you know, looking back at these pages and you know, going over these scripts. This is really, this is genuinely funny stuff. Like that, I, I did good work. I'm, I'm quite proud of it now. Yeah, even artistically, like I never played Final Fantasy One. I. I didn't start until the reviled final fantasy seven. So like I, um, <laughs> you're one of those. <laughs> yeah. I, I read through it and I just never got tired of the art. Like it was just always interesting and, and cool and fun to me. And I had no idea what I, you know, what it was based on, but yeah, I wish I could have told you that at the time, you know, tried uh. to maybe get, get your ego up so that you go off and do your own thing a little bit earlier rather than do <laughs> over a thousand of the coolest sprite comic that's ever existed. No offense to any okay. others I haven't read. No, I, you know, uh, you know, Amphitheater took 1,224 pages. It's a number that looms large in my imagination this year. Um, you know, if I, if I did it now, it wouldn't be that long. But I don't know, like, there's really, I don't know what you would cut. Because again, you know, I'm going over it with a, a modern sensibility and like, it's I'm I'm astonished as the guy who actually did it, how much uh, of the material really builds on what comes next, and how much of what comes next uh, loops back to what had already been done. Like it's really it intersects with itself constantly, in a way that uh, I don't know how that how I managed to pull that off. Well, I was going to ask you about your writing process and what that looked like then versus now and what has changed, but you just said you don't know how you pull it off. So maybe that's <laughs> not a good question. Yeah, well, yeah. So, you know, back then I had the, the basic layout, you know, the basic outline of here's what happens in Final Fantasy One. Now, how can we make this terrible and stupid and goofy in a world filled with just morons and assholes? You know, the... The NPCs, like the the you know just the random characters that they that the uh, light warriors we uh, meet, they're often just as stupid and, and terrible 
as the light wearers themselves, which is just awful people. I don't know what I was going through that made me want to do all that. But uh, now with with um, uh, Atomic Robo, you know, we sit down, we figure out what kind of adventure we want to do, uh, you know, what era we want it to take place in, what's Robo's angle to get into it, what's the big threat, what's the various twists, who's who, who's really involved, or what's the secret ploy. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of structure. Uh, I'll even go so deep as to not only outline, you know, here's the big event for each issue, but here's the big event for each page of each issue. Uh, of course, I'm not beholden to that. Like stuff changes as, as you go because you always discover something new about a story. No matter how much you've planned it, it's going to, uh, you're going to find new things about it as you go through it. But um, I guess Ava Theater was really my discovery of even that process of there being that basic outline of the game, my familiarity with the, the structure of the game and just finding all the detours and stupidity that I could cram into it. So in something like Atomic Robo, it's more of an adventure story. Like, I can't call it a comedy, right? But there's still a yes. lot of comedy in it. And sometimes the 8-bit influence, the 8-bit theater influence on the comedy is super apparent. Like, I think of the Dr. Dinosaur original story. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, you know, I can see straight where you came from as a writer from that. Yeah. But um, I guess how much of kind of, how does the 8-bit theater humor skills you develop kind of translate into something that's trying to be more serious or where the characters are not all supposed to be dumb idiots who are terrible to each other all the time <laughs> like if if that question parses to you yeah um yeah i don't because well with atomic robo specifically it's such a different approach to comedy right like ape theater is a bunch of shotgun blasts of comedy it's just filling a room with lead uh, Robo, when there's a joke, it's a lot more laser focused. It's it's not so just you know constant because uh, it's just trying to do more things or different things. So really, uh, Ape Theater doesn't influence it so much. Clearly, there's the outer insanity of Doctor Dinosaur, who is a bit of a valve, you know, where I where I can switch on some of the Ape Theaterness. Uh, really, Dr. Dinosaur, his whole thing is that uh, from old Looney Tunes cartoons, you know, Bugs Bunny always wins, right? He's the trickster. He's the hero. He always wins. No matter the situation, he can, you know, usurp it to his own advantage. He's going to win. Except for there's two comic or two cartoons with Cecil Turtle, who is the, the villain of the piece, if you will. And I love those two comics or those two cartoons because all the rules that we understand that operate for Bugs Bunny and that Bugs Bunny himself understands that these rules of how the universe operates when he's around are completely upended. Bugs can't win. He can't come out on top. Cecil Turtle always beats Bugs Bunny. And, he, and he only, he's only in those two cartoons. So I wanted uh, Ape Theater, or not Ape Theater, I wanted Atomic Robo to have that character, the character who shows up and is always going to defeat Robo. It makes no sense that he's able to do this, like just explicitly everything that we know about how this comic and how its world operates just does not apply as soon as Dr. Dinosaur shows up. Once he's there, it's Looney Tunes logic time. Everything he says is true, no matter how stupid and wrong it is, right? And that's also why we limit how often we see him. Because uh, again, uh, you only see Cecil Turtle twice in this two just brilliant uh, performances. 
so Dr. Dinosaur is also similarly limited because if you see him all the time, it's no longer a treat. It's no longer fun. It's no longer rules breaking when he's around because now the rules are when he's around, it's just how it is. Uh, so Dr. Dinosaur is a little bit of the ape theater approach to comedy where it is just insanity, right? Just, just the rules exist to be broken. And now that we understand how the rules can be broken, we break the rules in different ways and we break the rules of how we break the rules, right? That's Dr. Dinosaur. That was ape theater. Um, I would say what I've learned, what I learned from ape theater going forward from my other work is, uh, just, just thinking about, um, the structure, I just really appreciated uh, the structure of uh, working in a full page, working in different arcs. Um, with Ape Theater, there are story arcs that get resolved in like three pages, five pages, 200 pages, you know, whatever. Uh, and experimenting with, with different results of that led me to um, uh, operate the way that I do in, in uh, Atomic Robo, where we do generally, it's, it's five issues per arc, each issue is 22 pages, and that's just it. Uh, that can be very limiting, but also uh, that limitation forces you to make uh, decisions. And, and the results of those decisions are what uh, I, I believe result in uh, interesting art. To give a, a, a different example, uh, there's Lynch's Dune and then there's the new Dune. I don't know if you guys have seen the new one. It's fine. But I really like the uh, Lynch's because it is so flawed, because it is so limited by what they were able to do uh, in terms of budget, scheduling, technology, and so on, versus uh, this new one with, in, in effect, a limitless budget of just infinite computer animation, and it's just monochrome and gray, and here it is. Uh, you, what? Like, you, you had an infinite canvas of human imagination. You can will anything into existence in, these, in, in any of these computer graphics-driven uh, movies that they make these days, and it's just going to be monochrome and gray, and I just don't get it. I think it's, I think it's the same with Twitter, right? You can only you know, only have so many characters, so you have to come up with something. Yes, yeah, so really you have concise. to make. Yeah, you have to refine it down to the interesting element of it. Well, that's a very common thing with art. You know, you give yourself a limited palette. You know, as a right. like when you paint, you know, you're only supposed to use three different values, well, supposed to. In art school, you learn, like, only use three values. Even you can use different, you know, colors, but only these three values because that's what makes things vibrant and stand out. You, you can't just, like, go with everything and throw it at the wall because you're just going to get a pile of spaghetti on yeah. the wall or something. <laughs> and, yeah, it's, it's annoying with modern film because they're using CGI, I think, to the detriment of the art. Absolutely. And they could use it to elevate the art. They just don't. absolutely, yeah. It, it is so yeah. it's so disappointing to just see that decision made over and over and over, and uh, whatever. I forgot what we were talking about. I just got really impassioned about that. I, I don't know. That like, happens to me constantly. I know. what I feel you though. It's like, oh man. Well, I think I'm running low on questions. What about you, Taryn and Tori? I um. This conversation, like right at this point, is making me think of a couple of books I read called Writers on Comics Script Writing. I don't know if anyone else has read those, but it's major figures in the comics industry who are writers talking about their relationship with their with their artists. And so you, oh, you're cool. you're someone who went from, you know, make, doing your own art to working with an artist, and I'm I'm just curious. I think you you touched on it earlier, but I'm I'm wondering if you 
you could talk a little bit more about what the major, like maybe what what that collaboration has brought to the table in ways maybe you didn't expect? Oh, yeah. No, I, I've ha- had a tremendous amount of, of joy uh, working with Scott on Atomic Robo and, and now Escher and, and Lee on uh, Arise Skeleton King. Um, yeah, I, I find comics incredibly collaborative. Um, I mean, it should be, right? Like, I'm just the writer, and here's some ideas. My scripts, whenever I, I work with a new artist, I always, approach, I always give them uh, the same basic spiel of, you know, here's the script. Um, this is just my idea of how we should do it. Uh, you're the artist, you know, if, you know, I trust you, that's why we're working together. So, you know, if you have a different idea or a better idea or whatever, you know, let, let, let's see that version. And cause it's the easiest thing in the world. Like if, if that, if the artist version of it requires, you know, some rewrites, that's nothing. That's easy. I can do that. But it's a it's a completely different beast to have the artist turn in a page and then you go no I don't like these three panels redraw this page, that's days of work. That's you're you're negating a day's worth of work and creating a new day's worth of work. Or we can just discover the artist version of of this idea that we're all working toward that we're all trying to make the best comic that we that we can be a part of, finding their version of it, and then adjusting the script to bring out the best version of their wrist version, right? You know, right. Scott on Robo is always coming up with visuals or, you know, I'll write up a page and I've got a basic idea of what I expect to see on the page. And then I get it and it looks nothing at all like what I expected. I mean, just completely the the angles are, I'm just going to say, all wrong. They're not the wrong angles. They just weren't the angles that I was imagining. And I, I have seen writers, they'll react to stuff like this, like, as if it were was wrong. And I'm like, no, that's just, that's the artist's version uh, you know, your your script was the first draft. Their page is the second draft. Now you adjust your first draft and their second draft to create a third draft of the script. And then that's going to be, you know, a better page. And then, you know, the letters actually get put on. That's going to create a whole new draft. Because sometimes you have to kind of imagine what the, the word bubbles are going to look like on the page. And it, it just will read differently once they're on there. So, you know, you've got to change this line of dialogue or move it over here or whatever you know it's it's all it's constantly in flux until it's at the very end until you turn it into the printer and i'm just excited by every stage of that you know getting to to see for the first time you know what's what scott brought to that page whatever the hell it was i was writing how you know i'm, I'm excited about the changes that i have to make to bring up the best version of that page that he's done uh i can't imagine being any different um i, I know some writers are very they, they take the wrong lessons from, they'll read like, for instance, an Alan Moore script where a, a single panel will be a page worth of, of text description, right? And, you know, Alan uh, does have a bit of a, a reputation for, you know, this is the page, this is the script, this is what it's going to be. But that's Alan Moore. Like, you know, he can do that because it also as well, he, he is uh, a fairly decent artist. So like, he kind of knows what he's talking about. The rest of us are just these idiot writers, like just let the <laughs> artists work. You know, they're not going to, screw themselves up. They're not going to screw up your, your precious script. You can just change your little script. It's fine. It'll be better. Trust me. Makes me compare you to Stan Lee, right? Who famously would give the artists a, an outline of the story and then they would, they would draw the page and then Stan right. would provide the dialogue. But there were those times when like the artist did something that Stan didn't like and he just steamrolled over the art yeah. with the words. He would yeah. just like, in some cases, just like ignore what was actually happening on the panel and be like, no, this is what's happening. That yeah. is true because someone is saying so, or yeah. otherwise, just totally 
yeah, just these huge blocks of text to, to block it out. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Oh gosh, I can't even imagine what it would be like to try to have that sort of collaboration. Because like, I do the text and art for my comics, my limited number of comics I've released. But like, I even sometimes feel like I'm fighting myself. I'm like, oh, but that word, those words would be so good here. But then the picture is better. But ah, <laughs> it's like. Yeah, I don't. I don't envy. I don't envy the choice of um, the letter specifically. I think has the hardest time in a comic because uh, they've got to choose what to cover up. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, I was actually. It's sort of similar. I was going to ask if you had like. Um, I. This actually sort of seems like a rude question now that I'm putting it out into the world. I was going to ask if you had like a favorite person you've collaborated with in working on a comic, <laughs> but then that almost seems like you're like picking favorites may not be something you want to do. So uh, like, no, maybe I just mean, like a good time you had collaborating. I don't know. No, just all, I mean, all the comics that I work on, uh, you know, pr- mostly I do Atomic Robo and we have a blast doing that. I mean, we've been doing it now for, oh my Lord, 13 years, 14, maybe. Um, Obviously, I, uh, I've have had a, a great time working on uh, Arise Skeleton King. Escher's a good friend of ours. Lee, I've been working with for for pretty much all fourteen years of Robo. So you know, it's it's a good team. It's a lot of positivity. We all just really enjoy working together. Um, and you know, and, and I've had some experience working with Marvel and DC and, and Image and so on. You know, little projects that that cropped up here and there over the years. They've always been basically decent. You know, everyone's just trying to get along. Everyone's just trying to as I was saying earlier, just make the best version of, you know, whatever the assignment is, you know, just, just get it done and, and, and be decent to one another. And, and, uh, yeah. So yeah, I've just always had really good collaborative experiences. That's good to hear. I mean, you don't always hear those sorts of stories. I was recently watching that, uh, movies that made us show, and it seems like in major budget films, everyone's always fighting with each other, sometimes physically. So it's nice yeah, to hear a story of people like collaborating artistically, like without it's, that drama. It's really, yeah, it's, it's really bizarre. You know, you hear stories and it obviously it's very prevalent in Hollywood and in, in film or I mean in television mm-hmm. where it's just a nightmare or there's, there's, you know, somebody in charge just thinks there's genius and they, and part of that genius is being an asshole. No, no, <laughs> yeah. no, no, you don't have to do any of that. Well, thanks for not being an asshole, Brian. Well, I never said that. I mean, I am one in real life, but I don't. I don't bring that into my work. That would be rude. Of course, sure. yeah. yeah. You got to limit your assholeness to your personal life. Exactly. Well, speaking of pleasurable artistic collaborations, yes, it's been wonderful having you on, Brian. Yes. And I think we're almost ready to wrap up, but before we do, I think we have one last question that we didn't get to on our <laughs> short list here. Um, the really early eight bit theater, the ultimate ninth level destructive spell the black mage cast is a hadoken yeah and we were kind of wondering about your background there like did you play street fighter 2 turbo where you can have giant hadokens that are oh very destructive uh, so okay so i'm an only child <laughs> and where i grew up in the neighborhood i grew up in it's a nice little neighborhood but through an absolute quirk of demographics there was all there were no kids my age there were kids like a, three years older three years younger and then, you know, out from there in both directions, but really no kids my age. And like, that doesn't sound like a lot, but when you're, you know, eight years old, like a three-year difference is huge, right? That's practically a teenager in that stage. It's, it's freaky. Yep. So I ended up, uh, I gravitated toward playing video games, you know, because both my parents worked, so, you know, got to do something. 
Um, so I got uh, Street Fighter Two. I think it was, I think it was Christmas gift. I think the timing worked out for that. But anyway, I played that game like a maniac. But I never had a player two, right? So uh, as I'm playing, you know, I'm, I'm getting good at it, and I just keep bumping up the difficulty. I don't know if you played the Final Fantasy Two for the Super Nintendo, but the difficulty was just represented by a series of stars. I think eight stars in total. So I get to one point. I'm playing on full eight stars, and I play this game every day, right? Like at least once a day. So I get to this point where I'm a, I'm a full eight star kind of guy and Guile's my man. I'm a Guile player and I'm reckon. Yeah, I get to the point where I have, I'm generally destroying the computer opponent within seven seconds or less of every yeah. round. It's often within three seconds. It's insane, but I don't know this because there's no second player, right? I just think, Oh, you know, I just, this is just how the game plays. So anyway, eventually I, I suppose this would have been like, early high school, so like mid-high school, I've got a car, finally my friends can come over, you know, stuff like that. I play with Street Fighter 2 with my friends now. It is a massacre. These people don't know what's happening. I'm playing on a completely different level because I've been playing against this cyborg opponent for a couple of years now. Everyone else is playing against humans. The human can only do so much. The computer, I don't know if you guys know this, it cheats on the high difficulty. It cheats in all of them, but it cheats a lot on the high difficulty. So I had to... that. That's why I could beat it in like three or four seconds, because if I didn't, it, I was going to be destroyed in an instant. So, yeah, I played a little bit of Street Fighter 2. <laughs> uh, that, that's the answer to the question. I'm so glad we got to ask that. Uh, but I need a follow-up question. Sure. Who was sure. your main? Oh, always Guile. <laughs> he, it, well, there's a tactical reason why. Because you can jump forward, but be charging back and land, and then immediately throw the sonic boom, and your human opponent never expects this. It gets gets flustered, gets hit, and then because you can do the spinning uh, punch, the the fierce punch or the roundhouse kick, because his are so long range, you can get the double hit, the double whammy. Especially in, in uh, Street Fighter Two, you didn't really have a combo system yet, but if you did enough damage quickly, it would dizzy them every single time, and that's how you did it, and that's how you took them down in seven seconds. Oh, man. I'm going to break out Street Fighter 2 later. You, so here's the real trick. You charge up during the 3-2-1 fight, because then you can instantly do a flash kick, which they're not expecting, because they're going to jump forward or walk forward, thinking, oh, I got two seconds of freedom. No, you just flash kicked him in the face. They're already falling on the ground. You've been charging back this whole time. You land, you sonic boom, but it's the slow. It's the jab, because it's so slow. Now, for the fireball, the regular uh, Ken and Ryu fireballs, those would just pass by. The sonic boom is twice as wide. The back, So as they stand up, which they have no control over, the back of the sonic boom will smack them in the back of the sprite. It, it's a contact point. It does damage again. They've already, So they're stunned. They don't know that's going to happen. You're already walking forward, motherfucker. You have kicked them in the face as they get hit in the back. Boom, that's the dizzy. Boom, they go down again. Boom, you suplex them. Boom, you just won. Mind blown. Okay, okay. So then why Hadouken instead of Sonic Boom? Like, Oh, because oh, everybody, yeah. everybody knows Ryu, you know, Ken and Ryu, so that's why. Fair enough. That's, that's and, fair. Uh, I'm just reeling from this new dearth of knowledge. Not gonna <laughs> that was all from memory. That was literally how you would do it. Oh my yeah. God. So yeah, I probably did that sequence, you know, a thousand times, ten thousand times. Right, like, as you did, you know, with, you know, when you were practicing on the... Because there were only so many games back then, you know? I only owned, like, four games. Oh, I know, you get, so like, one a year if you're lucky. Yeah, right? Right. 
Oh, all right. I think that just about did me in too. I was trying not to laugh on camera hearing you <laughs> relate all that from memory and had to mute myself. Uh, but I guess before we let you go, Brian, you've got two projects in the works that are going to be coming out. You've got Arise Ye Skeleton King, which is not quite out yet. And you've got, what's it called exactly? The 8-Bit Theater Memorial Coffee Table Book. Oh, you know, I, I don't know. Do we have an official title? Like in the Kickstarter, it's 8-Bit Theater Do Not Sue Edition. I think we might call it that. <laughs> Fair enough. I like it. Uh, could you tell us where we'll be able to find those once they're out? Is And especially for the 8-Bit Theater one, is that going to be, is that like a Kickstarter exclusive or are you going to be selling copies? Oh, yeah. So the 8-Bit Theater one, we already ran the Kickstarter, but you can... Uh, once we're collecting addresses to send it out, you know, we'll open up like a pledge manager, which is kind of another way to just, you know, say, I want one too. So you can still buy it through that. Uh, that'll be available uh, somewhere next year. Um, just follow me on Twitter or follow the Apitheater, um, you know, reprint ca uh, campaign on, on uh, Kickstarter and you'll just get an update whenever we, we do that. Um, Rise Ye Skeleton King, the print edition will be, it's already gone out to backers. It'll be available for general store uh, sale through our online store, which you can find at atomic-robot.com. There's a store link there. Um, it should be available by the time people are actually listening to this. All, all six of your listeners. <laughs> On a good day, we get 60, but we're not talking about Harry Potter today, so... <laughs> oh, yeah, I, no, Peter's going to have to have that. You might get up to nine. <laughs> I'm crossing my fingers for ten. You know, Ooh. nice even number. Double, Double digits. Digit. Yeah. Yeah. And remind us what your Twitter is, Brian. Uh, what is it? It is B. Clevenger. I'm very imaginative. <laughs> you got there first, at least. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks again so much for coming on and talking to us, even after we complained about your comic a lot. Uh, and, and also praise it. Well, it's, it's, there's a lot to complain about. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a pleasure having you on. Oh, it's been, it's been great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, this has been... Um... One of the best interviews we've done. I agree. <laughs> uh, we only did what one other. Hey, so. hey, hey. <laughs> hey, shut up. This one's great. <laughs> it is. It's been really good. So. The hoot. In all pure honesty, if I can do such. Do, do people still say things are a hoot? I think so. Okay. I mean, you just said it. It's retro. It's fine. There you go. So yes, this was a special episode of Retro Fanfic Retrospective, an interview with Brian Clevenger, author of 8-Bit Theater and also Atomic Robo and also some other stuff. You somehow did not hit it big for Warbot and Accounting, um, which makes me sad. Well, the whole comic makes people sad, so it's <laughs> Yeah, that was my reaction last podcast. Is I was like, poor Warbot. <laughs> Just hearing about it secondhand, I know. Yeah, I can, haven't can I, read it. Actually, can I, get, can I tell one last story? Oh, oh absolutely. It's about Warbot and accounting. It was the storyline we never got to do. Please. Uh, it was going to be this long thing, uh, you know, taking place over 50 pages maybe, where, you know, Warbot, he's sad after his, he has to sort of kill or throw away his robot daughter. So he eventually lands, um, he does volunteer work at an old folks home. You know, he gets assigned, you know, an elderly person or whatever. And this person, you know, they're a little out of it. They're slightly senile, but not not terrible. A little bit of dementia coming in. So they keep referring to him as the refrigerator because, you know, he's the shape that he is. Uh, 
and so they, you know, they do share your typical things, you know, they go for, they do walks in the park, the whatever, you know, it's, we, we just see this relationship kind of building over time as there's other terrible things happening to, to Warbot, but he always has the old man to come back to. And you can tell the old man likes him, but it's kind of a curmudgeon about it, you know, and, and always refers to him as a refrigerator. So as it goes on, eventually the old man does indeed pass away and uh, is very sad. And he leaves everything to his one friend, the refrigerator. But nobody knows that's the war bot. Everyone thinks, oh, he just has dementia. He thinks he's living it, leaving his fortune, his vast fortune and all of his worldly goods to literally just the refrigerator. He was, it, grandpa was insane. Just throw it, just, let's just take all this stuff. And poor Warbot never even gets invited to the funeral because, you know, he's not, he's just a Warbot. The end. <laughs> I'm glad we had that conclusion. Poor Warbot. <laughs> yeah. 10 out of just, 10. For... Just in case you weren't sad enough. Oh, yeah. That is, I mean, that's a tragic tale, but a, a well-told one. That's what we're... Well, you can find... Warbot and Accounting and Brian Clevenger's other less successful work, Aphid Theater, still on wow. nuclearpower.com with a K. And you can find Atomic Robo anywhere fine comics are uh, available, which in my case is more the library than, you know, the comic store, but your mileage may vary. The intro song to the podcast is The Weekly Fair off of the album Popey's Incredible Adventure by Komiku. The outro song is Run Against the Universe from the same album. And you can find that album and other works by Komiku at loyaltyfreakmusic.com. You can find our website at retrofanficretrospective.podbean.com or bit.ly slash retrofanfic. This podcast is edited by Dom Davis, always lurking in the background, doing good editing, and dealing with microphone issues. We, we have a lot of microphone issues. Maybe we should get some kind of actual budget for equipment at some point. Maybe we should stop using microphones. There you go. That's the solution. If you have questions, comments, or thoughts about the episode or want to send us better microphones, you can contact us on Twitter at RetroFanfic, Facebook at RetroFanfic. You can send us an email at RetroFanficRetrospective at gmail.com. You can also leave comments or reviews on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast service you use. I'm Amato. I'm Tori. I'm Tarin. I guess I'm Brian. <laughs> we are just four Earth lifeforms trying not to be horrible, deranged gremlins to each other. Until next time, take care. <laughs>